recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 28th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of true Israel, and only true Israel, and thank you for listening. I have an announcement to make. I made an emailing on this the other day. We were um, able this past week to publish the full text of the Russian number one report on the Christogenia.org Mein Kampf project. Russian number one is a collection of British diplomatic and, and, and actually reports filed by British diplomatic and military personnel first published by the British government in 1919. It consists primarily of eyewitness accounts detailing the horrors of the Bolshevik Revolution and the crimes of the Jews. And this report in several places sticks it right on the Jews who were their leaders, their chief leaders, the chief participants, the organizers, the perpetrators of the destruction of Christian Russia. This report had a very narrow distribution and is therefore quite rare. It was actually pulled out of print by the British government a short time after it was first published and and amended and, and, and abridged shorter version was published in its place, which had a lot of the mentions of the Jews removed. The Jews in the Western media, which they control, have misrepresented the nature of the Bolshevik Revolution from the very beginning. And to this day, they suppress the accounts and records of its horrors. For that same reason, they have always sought to suppress this report. This report, the, the Internet's been around for 20 years. And this is the first time that this report is published online in a useful version. There is a version online at archive.org, but that version is simply a scan without even being edited, and it's, it, it's not even usable. It's ridiculous. So this is an Internet first for this report, so far as I have seen. It's, this, it, it's not the first major Internet first at the Christogenia.org Mein Kampf Project. There are other reports. There's a U.S. government report at the Mein Kampf Project from 1919, a report on the Bolshevik Revolution. That was also an Internet first at Christogenia. The, um, I, I would encourage everybody to go to the Mein Kampf Project. There are PDFs available. One PDF is 70 megabytes. It's the scan of the original of the original report it's a facsimile scan pdf that's why it's 70 megabytes the other pdf available of the russian number one report is now the text and it could be copied it could be reposted it could be whatever i don't it it, it belongs to all of us we are grateful once again to mr gerald mosley for providing us with the original facsimiles from his library. And our dear sister in Ohio, I will leave her unmentioned for obvious reasons, who has labored for a year in her spare time to create this text edition. I would encourage that links to the Russian number one page at the Christogenia.org Mein Kampf project 
be spread far and wide. I really would. It's This report should have been public information 100 years ago, or, or at least 94 years ago, and it's been suppressed. There's no doubt. The treachery of the Jews in every turn of modern history has been suppressed, has been pushed under the carpet because the Jews control the media and they control the international banking system that the media and all major international corporations are beholden to. There's no doubt. Tonight, we're going to present what I'm calling Justifying the National Socialist Reaction to the Reichstag Fire, Part 2, The Inevitability of the Enabling Act. And once again, I have sword brethren here Hello. to help. how are you, Bill? And not to jump the gun too soon here, but would you like me to quote a campaign speech where Hitler explicitly declares that he will sweep all the other parties out of Germany? And this is before he came Well, well, right. well let's introduce the program first, right? Uh-huh. I, I know you're, you're aching to do that. In part one of the series, we showed that the threat of a communist revolution in Germany, and, and I chose, a purposely chose a liberal source to show this, that the threat of a communist revolution in Germany was very real, and that the threat was recognized by the German federal government, the Weimar government, right up through the early 1930s. We also saw that in its own propaganda, the German Communist Party itself had been threatening such a revolution throughout all of the years of the Weimar Republic. Therefore, when the Reichstag burned and the culprit was found to be a communist who admitted torching the building for the purpose of setting off such a revolution, whether the Communist Party itself was directly complicit or not is immaterial. The NSDAP and the German government as a whole had every right to believe that such a revolution was the purpose of the fire, and the Communist Party was therefore banned. Here we shall present material from Mein Kampf, which clearly shows that if the NSDAP ever came to power, the dissolution of other political parties and the dissolution of parliamentary democracy in Germany as a whole was only inevitable. And therefore, in 1933, the Enabling Act was indeed also inevitable. The people of Germany, they knew this when they voted for the National Socialist Party. They understood that it was a National Socialist campaign platform to get rid of all the parties of Germany, to get rid of the parliamentary democracy. Germany, historically, for a thousand years, lived under an authoritarian system of government, under a monarchy, which didn't end until 1918. The German people, to a great degree, did not like to see it end. And with this, you may present that, your pericope from that speech. Right, well, this quote proves that the Enabling Act was the fulfillment of a long-held view of the NSDAP and a campaign promise Hitler had made many months previous. This is from 1932, July, a campaign speech. Of course, Hitler's the one speaking. 
Our opponents accuse us national socialists, and me in particular, of being intolerant and quarrelsome. They say that we don't want to work with other parties. They say the national socialists are not German at all because they refuse to work with other political parties. So is it typically German to have 30 parties? I have to admit one thing. These gentlemen are quite right. We are intolerant. I set for myself one aim, to sweep these 30 parties out of Germany. They mistake us for one of them. We have one aim, and we will follow it fanatically and ruthlessly to the grave. And how much does this contrast with what we hear today from people talking about reaching across the aisle, compromising our rights away, working with all parties, unless it's a nationalist party? Well, what's wrong with parliamentary democracy? And, and that's what's wrong with the, the United States has a slightly different model that, than they have in Europe, but it's still basically the same idea. And that is why our government is operated by a series of compromises. And that's why we're in the position that we are. That, that's natural to parliamentary democracy. Well, if, and, if every time not, a piece of legislation comes up that's going to take away 30% of your rights or it's going to raise your taxes by 20%, they compromise and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll just raise taxes by 12% and he'll, he'll only take away 20% of your rights. Well, gradually over time, you wind up with no income and no rights. Well, well this is another case, just like when, where, where we explained the the capitalist communist dichotomy that that it's only argued from within the box this too is only looked at by americans and and people in the west in general from within the box that the jew built for us because the jewish media and jewish academics and their jewish inspired flunkies have been selling us on the idea that parliamentary democracy is the only fair and equitable system of government that ever existed. And it certainly isn't. In, in fact, rule by majority is a horrible system of government, and the Jew knows it, and the Jew, whoever controls the media, is basically controlling the country. Well, parliamentarian democracy is one of the worst systems of government ever conceived, and as you said, the Jew knows that. It essentially amounts to a head count, although these days it's basically a racial head count. It's about who can get the most people in the street, who can get them loud and rowdy, and whoever controls the mob, that's the same person who controls the media. They have the, um, the pulse of the mob. They tell the mob where to be, when to be, and why they're supposed to be upset. It's the media. And, and, basically, the media. and, and basically, that's how tyrannical generals had ruled the Roman Empire, for several centuries before its fall. Right. And that the only thing that kept it going over those centuries was basically inertia. Right. And whoever controls the money controls the media. Absolutely. So while it seems as though it is a rule by the majority, one man, one vote, it's really a rule by the money to lead. Well, absolutely. Here we shall present material from Mein Kampf which clearly shows, and, and you said that this was a campaign promise from 1933, and you're right, it was. But this was a campaign promise from 10 years before that when Mein Kampf was published, when Mein Kampf was written. This campaign, and we'll see that tonight, that this was always the goal. This was no surprise. It was always the goal of National Socialism to rid Germany of the parliamentary democracy 
and to introduce to it a new type of democracy, which was the election of a single authoritarian leader by the people. And that might be, a, that, that might be um, considered a dictatorship or a tyranny by the Jewish press and Jewish academics, but it certainly was not. The people were electing an authoritarian leader. Right, and well, that, since they're electing that somebody... That, that is how Adolf Hitler explained his political philosophy in Mein Kampf. We will see that tonight. But electing an authoritarian patriot who's going to end Jewish money lending and pillaging of the country and end their stock jobs voted for. And the German people voted for that. Right, but democracy is only acceptable when you vote for a, shoe, a shill for the Jews. If you vote for a genuine patriot, now it's an authoritarian dictatorship with no legitimacy. Well, in order to, to, to um, present this in an understandable fashion, or, or at least I pray that we present it in an understandable fashion, we have to back up a little and, and, and go to Chapter 10 of Book 1 of Mein Kampf to understand why Hitler disdained, to begin to understand why Hitler and, and why many Germans disdained parliamentary democracy in the first place. Hitler, talking about the years leading up to the First World War, explains, when, when Germany was still in a monarchy, explains that the liberal press, which he distinguishes from the lying Marxist press, but which he, he sees as even far more evil, the liberal press is the mainstream Marxist press, more, more, more or less. He explains that the liberal press had all along been conditioning people to accept Western democracy, while Germany was a monarchy, and that it was also instilling a morality of pacifism into the people, inevitably so that they would not be prepared to fight the war which the international bankers were about to foist upon them. Hitler considered that to be a part of the war against Germany by the plutocratic forces. Culminating in the First World War, Hitler understood the failure of the German monarchy to protect itself as an institution. The nature of the bureaucrats who were supported by the monarchy had failed to support it in return. And the methods that the press used to undermine the state while the state did nothing at all to curtail the press. All of this led to the dominance of Germany by the international Jews under Versailles and the Weimar Republic. With this, we understand Hitler's appreciation for authoritarian government, which also was the appreciation of many of the German people. In fact, the German National People's Party which was the major conservative party of the Weimar years, that was a, more or less a mainstream party that wished for a return to authoritarian government. And we discussed that last week. We also understand, with, with this pericope from Mein Kampf and Hitler's explanation, his disdain for democracy and his further disdain for a state that has no control over the press where money becomes the real threat and not freedom of speech. People have freedom of speech. The press should not necessarily have freedom to subvert. 
And that's something we don't understand. That's something we have never understood in America. Well, the press has wonderfully subverted the nation to the point where, as you were saying earlier when we were discussing it, there are seldom any local little communist leaflets and journals that are laying on tables anymore because all those people moved on in the 50s and 60s and became mainstream media figures. Right. Absolutely. And occasionally you see some radical, far-out, alternative-type journal of some anarchist or some earth-firster type, and they're handing out leaflets and flyers, but most of those people... 30, 40 years ago, or at least 20 years ago, they moved on, and they're in mainstream media now. The people well, well, right. That's because the mainstream media, the Marxist media, became the mainstream media. Uh, I, I mean, it, it shifted. The whole spectrum, the whole political spectrum shifted in America in the, in, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It shifted sharply to the left. From Chapter 10 of Book 1 of Mein Kampf, this is from pages 137 to 139 of the edition posted at Christogenia, the words of Adolf Hitler. It is clear that the worth and significance of the monarchical principle cannot rest in the person of the monarch alone, unless heaven decrees that the crown should be set on the head of a brilliant hero like Frederick the Great or a sagacious person like William I. This may happen once in several centuries, but hardly more often than that. The ideal of the monarchy takes precedence of the person of the monarch, inasmuch as the meaning of the institution must lie in the institution itself. Thus, the monarchy may be reckoned in the category of those whose duty it is to serve. He, too, is but a wheel in this machine. And as such, he is obliged to do his duty towards it. He has to adapt himself for the fulfillment of high aims. If, therefore, there were no significance attached to the idea itself, and everything merely centered around the sacred person, then it would never be possible to depose a ruler who has shown himself to be an imbecile. In, um, in ancient England... The monarchs ruled at the uh, basically with the blessing of the rest of the nobility, and and if the lords of the, of the manors wanted the monarch out, and there were enough of them, the monarch was out, and, and that was a sort of monarchy by oligarchy, basically. Right. Well, most governments are oligarchies. There's a rule by an elite, and if the spokesman for the elite starts to betray the interests of the elite, they run him out. Isn't that why the the Magna Carta resulted? The Absolutely. The barons didn't agree with what the monarch was doing. Absolutely. We will see in chapter 12 of book one of, of Mein Kampf, we will see that Hitler outlines the national socialist principles of governance and explains that the, that the national socialist philosophy of governance had, indeed, had a, a way to replace its own rulers if perhaps one did turn out to be an imbecile. And, and that was part of their party philosophy. It is essential to insist upon this truth at the present time, because recently those phenomena 
have appeared again and were in no small measure responsible for the collapse of the monarchy. He's talking about 1918 in the wake of World War I. With a certain amount of native impudence, these persons once again talk about their king. That is to say, and, and he's talking, his, his, the, the chief um, object of, of his wrath here are basically the bureaucratic class. With a certain amount of native impudence, these persons once again talk about their king. That is to say, the man whom they shamefully deserted a few years ago at a most critical hour. Those who refrain from participating in this chorus of lies are summarily classified as bad Germans. They who make the charge are the same class of quitters who ran away in 1918 and took to wearing red badges. They thought that discretion was the better part of valor. They were indifferent about what happened to the Kaiser. They camouflaged themselves as peaceful citizens. But more often than not, they vanished altogether. All of a sudden, these champions of royalty were nowhere to be found at that time. Circumspectly, one by one, these servants and counselors of the crown reappeared to resume their lip service to royalty, but only after the others had borne the brunt of the anti-royalist attack and suppressed the revolution for them. He's talking about the Free Corps. Once again, they were all there, remembering wistfully the flesh pots of Egypt and almost bursting with devotion for the royal cause. This went on until the day when the red badges were again in the ascendant. Then this whole ramshackle assembly of royal worshippers scuttled anew like mice from the cats. And, and the reference to the flesh pots of Egypt is a reference to the exodus and the weak will of many of the Israelites who would have returned to decadence and slavery rather than face the difficult challenges which lie ahead. So why would Hitler, if Hitler's a pagan who hates the Bible and thinks that the Old Testament applies to Jews, why does he make repeated references to the Old Testament? Well, well right, he, he was well-read in the Old Testament, and, and he used Old Testament models in places at, as his models for government, as his, his paradigms in literature, constantly, consistently, and he constantly appealed to the authority of a divine creator, which he must have believed in. Now, some people were saying, oh, Hitler was paying lip service, but he did this consistently right from crawling out of the foxholes of World War I all the way to crawling into the bunker in 1945. Right. Did he make a to the creator and a justice of God? He was a Christian right to the end. People paying lip service generally just speak in vague generalities, and they talk about, oh, God this, God that, Jesus, Jesus. They don't get into specific details about theological, well, philosophical I'll draw literary examples from, 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 exam from biblical examples. The, um, yeah, you know, Adolf Hitler, through the war years, he became disenchanted with the church organization, but that's separate from Christianity and from a belief in God. That's absolutely separate. And all Christians everywhere, if they had any damn sense, would be absolutely disgusted with every ecclesiastical organization.
back to Adolf Hitler. As monarchs were not themselves responsible for such things, one could not help sympathizing with them. But they must realize that with such champions, meaning the people that, the sycophants that they peopled their offices with, right? That with such champions, thrones can be lost, but certainly never gained. All this devotion was a mistake and was the result of our whole system of education, which in this case brought about a particularly severe, severe retribution. Such lamentable trumpery was kept up at the various courts that the monarchy was slowly becoming undermined. When finally it did begin to totter, everything was swept away. Naturally, grovelers and lickspittles are never willing to die for their masters. That monarchs never realize this, and almost on principle never really take the trouble to learn it, has always been their undoing. One visible result of wrong, of wrong educational system was the fear of shouldering responsibility and the resultant weaknesses in dealing with obvious vital problems of existence. The starting point of this epidemic, however, was in our parliamentary institution, where the shirking of responsibility is particularly fostered. Unfortunately, the disease slowly spread to all branches of everyday life, but particularly affected the sphere of public affairs. Responsibility was being shirked everywhere, and this led to insufficient or half-hearted measures being taken, personal responsibility for each act being reduced to a minimum. And, and well, well, that's so true in any um, democratic system of government. We don't hold today's congressmen responsible for the mistakes they make when they're discovered two, three, four years later. Oh. We didn't hold any of the congresses of the past responsible for, for changes in the course of our, our government, which turned out to be disastrous. We never do. Well, you know, well, when um, Ted Kennedy stood up in 1965 and declared that the immigration bill, he explicitly promised that it will not swamp America with the refuse of the third world. It will not change the demographic composition of this nation. Right. You know, only a few thousand people will move here each year. We will not be deluged with millions. Well, ten years later, when it was clear that that wasn't the case, people should have been hunting him down. Well, well right, and they weren't. That's the way it is. That that That's... One of the big faults of, of the d democratic system is that when things go wrong, nobody's around to, 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 bear, the, to bear the punishment. They blame or, or the office. Nobody remembers what happened four years ago to hold anybody responsible. It, it's the same pattern every election. Most Americans have a very bad view of Congress as an institution and a body, but they have a very positive view of their own particular congressman. And they consistently reelect their own. Con I've seen congressmen in New Jersey win 15 times in a row. They don't without question once. Their records are never inspected. They run on campaign promises that are never fulfilled, and they win 15 times in a row because it's it, it's a local popularity contest. Back to Adolf Hitler. If we consider the attitude of various governments toward a whole series of really pernicious phenomena in public life, uh, 
we shall at once recognize the fearful significance of this policy of half-measures and the lack of courage to undertake responsibilities. I shall single out only a few from the large numbers of instances known to me. In journalistic circles, it is a pleasing custom to speak of the press as a great power within the state, the, the fourth estate here, right? As a matter of fact, its importance is immense. One cannot easily overestimate it, for the press continues the work of education, even in adult life. And I like to say that 99% of Americans get everything they think they know from USA Today and, and, and the other newspapers, right? Or, or the electronic media. Generally, readers of the press can be classified into three groups. First, those who believe everything they read. Second, those who no longer believe anything, the cynics, right? Third, those who critically examine what they read and form their judgments accordingly. Numerically, the first group is by far the strongest and, and, and the most active in the ballot box, being composed of the broad masses of the people. Intellectually, it forms the simplest portion of the nation. It cannot be classified according to occupation, but only in the grades of intelligence. Under this category come all those who have not been born to think for themselves or who have not learned to do so, and who, partly through incompetence and partly through ignorance, believe everything that is set before them in print. And, and there are plenty of those here. To these, we must add, that type of lazy individual who, although capable of thinking for himself, out of sheer laziness, gratefully absorbs everything that others had thought over, modestly believing this to have been thoroughly done. The, in, the, the, the existence of some Christian identity pastors actually proves that this group exists everywhere. The influence which the press has on all these people is therefore enormous, for after all they constitute the broad masses of a nation. But somehow they are not in a position or are not willing personally to sift what is being served up to them, so that their whole attitude towards daily problems is almost solely the result of extraneous influence. All this can be advantageous where public enlightenment is of a serious and truthful character, but great harm is done when scoundrels and liars, which control our media, when scoundrels and liars take a hand at this work. The second group is numerically smaller, being partly composed of those who were formerly in the first group and after a series of bitter disappointments, these are the cynics, right, are now prepared to believe nothing of what they see in print. They hate all newspapers. Either they do not read them at all, or they become exceptionally annoyed at their contents, which they hold to be nothing but conjuries of lies and misstatements. These people are difficult to handle, for they will always be skeptical of the truth. Consequently, they are useless for any form of positive work. The third group is easily the smallest, being composed of real intellectuals whom natural aptitude and education have taught to think for themselves and who in all things try to form their own judgments while at the same time carefully sifting what they read.
They will not read any newspaper without using their own intelligence to collaborate with that of the writer. And naturally, this does not set writers an easy task. Journalists appreciate this type of reader only with a certain amount of reservation. Hence, the trash that newspapers are capable of serving up is of little danger, less, much less importance, to the members of that third group of readers. In the majority of cases, these readers have learned to regard every journalist as fundamentally a rogue who sometimes speaks the truth. Most unfortunately, the value of these readers lies in their intelligence and not in their numerical strength. An unhappy state of affairs in a period where wisdom counts for nothing and majorities for everything. And, and, and this is absolutely true. 90% of the people that go to the ballot box are in that first group of people. They're idiots. And that's why parliamentary democracy never works. They don't deserve that's to vote. Scum, but... That's why the scum always rises to the top. Well, with their majority at the ballot box, they basically cancel out our vote a hundred times over. Absolutely. It doesn't matter if we have a well-researched viewpoint or some political worldview that we've thought out and developed for 10 years and we know who the right candidate for our nation is. There's a hundred suckers out there who are just going to go with whoever CNN or Fox News told them to go with. Absolutely. Whoever has the, the most... um expensive suit or the nicest haircut and and the people that watch fox news all vote this way and the people that watch cnn all vote that way and they vote based on their emotion nowadays when the voting papers of the masses are the deciding factor the decision lies in the hands of the numerically strongest group that is to say the first group the crowd of simpletons and the credulous it is an all-important interest of the state and the national duty to prevent these people from falling into the hands of false, ignorant, or even evil-minded teachers, like all the Jews that run Hollywood and the media. Therefore, it is the duty of the state to supervise their education and prevent every form of offense in this respect. Particular attention should be paid to the press for its influence on, his, on these people is by far the strongest and most penetrating of all, since its effect is not transitory, but continual. Its immense significance lies in the uniform and persistent repetition of its teaching. Here, if anywhere, the state should never forget that all means should converge towards the same end. It must not be led astray by the will-o'-the-wisp of so-called freedom of the press or be talked into neglecting its duty and withholding from the nation that which is good and that which does good. With ruthless determination, the state must keep control of this instrument of popular education and place it at the service of the state and the nation. And that's absolutely true. Freedom of speech gives us, each of us, an equal ability to speak our minds as we see fit. But extending that to the corporate media, 
we give a very small group of people a much larger voice than any single person merits. Because if we're all all equal in the society, we shouldn't allow an electronic media and a very small number of people to control it to have such a large voice. The electronic media and the press being allowed to reign free, that has basically erased the opinions of us all. Well, we've given a small minority a tool with which they can mislead the entire nation and take us on a course for oblivion. There's no doubt. So, it, so, so freedom of the press, it, it's, uh, I understand that a state-controlled media in a tyranny is an evil thing. But a state-controlled media is a necessity to the survival of a state. And that's just the way it is. And anybody, anybody who has observed the power of the media in America these last 50 years, 70 years, should understand that, should understand it fully. The Jews, they sure as hell understand it. Back to Adolf Hitler. But what sort of pabulum was it that the German press served up for the consumption of its readers in pre-war days? Was it not the worst virulent poison imaginable? Was not pacifism in its worst form inoculated into our people at a time when others were preparing slowly but surely to pounce upon Germany? Did not this, self, did not this self-same press of ours in peacetime already instill into the public mind a doubt as to the sovereign rights of the state itself? thereby already handicapping the state in choosing its means of defense. Was it not the German press that understood how to make all the nonsensical talk about Western democracy palatable to our people until an exuberant public was eventually prepared to entrust its future to the League of Nations? We've seen the same pattern over and over again in America. Was not this press instrumental in bringing in a state of moral degradation among our people? We've seen that over and over again in America. Were not morals and public decency made to look ridiculous, as the press does here, and classed as out of date and banal, until finally our people also became modernized. You know, even the, I love to quote this, the Roman historian Tacitus spoke in Germania, I think it's either part 10 or part 15, I don't remember, I think it's part 10, and he said that the Germans of his time did not engage in moral decadence and consider it up to date. In other words, first century, elements of first century Rome were pushing immorality as fashion. And we see it here, and we saw it in Germany leading up to the First World War. Well, and we saw same, it again in Weimar, Germany. This is the exact same pattern that the Jews replicate in every society that they're in the process of subverting. They You'll find Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, they, they ridicule anybody who has a semblance of morality as clinging to the past. You're, 
you're a reactionary. You're just clinging to old, tired traditions. We don't still live in caves. Why do you want to cling to those morals? No doubt. By means of persistent attacks, did not the press keep on undermining the authority of the state until one blow sufficed to bring this institution tottering to the ground? Did not the press oppose with all its might every movement to give the state that which belongs to the state and by means of constant criticism injure the reputation of the army, sabotage, general conscription, sounds like Vietnam, right? And demand refusal of military credits, etc., until the success of this campaign, meaning Germany's defeat in the war, was assured. So, so that's why Adolf Hitler has no use in part for parliamentary democracy and has no use for the press, for, for a free press. But when you have an authoritarian state, you, you're giving license to certain elements. And in this case, it was the same international Jews, of course, to undermine that state. And that's exactly what they did in Germany, leading up to and during the First Great War. That is why, in his political philosophy, he created a schema where the people would democratically elect a single authoritarian ruler, and that the state would have control of the press so that outside influences would not be able to subvert the nation through the press, which we've seen over and over again in our history, giving our press complete freedom and, and reign and license, and, and much more license than the average person has, so that the press's freedom of speech is countless millions of times, even though one person might own the, the television station or one person might own the network or the newspaper or the magazine. So basically that one person, we would think if all men are created equal in the eyes of the law, that one person, his voice and freedom of speech would be no greater than the rest of us. Well, through the electronic media and the print media and, and mass distribution, that one person has a voice millions of times greater than any of us. And that gives the, the, the what? well, the international Jews in the case of all modern white society. However, that gives those with money who seek to use the press to their advantage, that gives them a much greater freedom of speech than any of us have. And, and we can't compete with it. It can't be competed with. It, it can't be... It, it can't exist on equitable ground in a society of free and equal people. It can't. So, so therefore, society is destined not to be free and equal, and it's not. It's a real simple formula. Because Mein Kampf is an entire thesis on German society and governance, which was formed out of Adolf Hitler's understanding of the destruction of a long-standing monarchical Germany at the hands of the international Jew. 
The ideas which it expresses are closely interconnected, and sometimes it's difficult to determine exactly where one should begin and one should end quoting from it in order to make a point or illustrate an idea. In this next section, from chapter 12, book one of my comp, which are pages um, from page 194 of the edition posted at Christogenia, Adolf Hitler outlines the basic national socialist principles of governance. We've just given you the reasons why he developed these principles. And we will see some of those reasons reiterated here. Would you like to read? All right, and it says it's, it says it's from Chapter 12 of Book 1 of Mein Kampf. I don't doubt that, but then it says page 194 to 139. Yeah, well, I said it's from page 194, right, because I realized I never updated that part. Okay. Social democracy and the whole Marxist movement were particularly qualified to attract the great masses of the nation because of their uniformity, because of the uniformity of the public to which they addressed their appeal. The more limited and narrow their ideas and arguments, the easier it was for the masses to grasp and assimilate them, for those ideas and arguments were well adapted to a low level of intelligence. These considerations led to the new movement, led the new movement to adopt a clear and simple line of policy, which was as follows. In its message, as well in its forms of expression, the propaganda must be kept on a level with the intelligence of the masses, and its values must be measured by the actual success it achieves. And as an aside, I've noticed that leftists generally aren't great thinkers. Have you noticed that, Bill? They style themselves intellectuals, but their message is still the same. It's, it's just a broken record. We haven't seen real communism. We need to try again. Who cares if another 100 million people die? Oh, it didn't happen. Stalin was great. We need communism. Property ruins society. Every nation that instituted communism went bankrupt or fell apart. It collapsed under its own weight. They don't seem to comprehend that. Or they do realize that, and they're just not going to admit it. Absolutely. But you, you don't see too many great thinkers in communism. You know, all of these communist philosophers, they say that Kim Il-sung wrote 60,000 pages, despite the fact that he was basically a semi-literate peasant, who had no formal education, and Hocha supposedly wrote all these great works. Not great thinkers. No communist is a great thinker, because communism is only the, the political expression of Jewish Talmudism. It's geared, it's designed to separate white man from his wife, his daughter, his sister, his money, his property, and separate white women from their panties. That's what communism is designed to do. It's very effective, but you, you don't have to be a great thinker to figure it out. Right, but e even these front men, these party leaders in you know, North Korea and Turkmenistan, they're not even writing the books that are attributed to them. The, the one guy who recently died in Turkmenistan, he called himself the Turkmenbasi, leader of the Turkmen. His name was Sapuramat Niazov. He supposedly wrote this wonderful book that everyone had to read. You couldn't get a driver's license unless you passed a test on his book and how well you could quote his book. And all the government workers had to read his book. And they had to read his book in physical education class. And in math class, they had to read his book. And it's probably a good time now for me to tell you this man couldn't read or write. 
yet he supposedly wrote this book, which begs the question, who really wrote the book? Probably some Jew, and this guy is just a front man wearing a suit. You know, he's an empty suit, basically a shill for the Jew. Sounds like Muhammad. <laughs> it's the same with all these communist leaders. They don't write the books that are attributed to them. I highly doubt Mao could have written a book commenting on, you know, historical dialectical materialism and the development of class struggle in the French Revolution. Of course Mao, not. He was a thug. He was, yeah, he was a, a semi-literate thug. And Stalin was just a train-robbing, bank-robbing thug. None of these people were – they're not university intellectual types who spend hours each day sitting around smoking a pipe, sipping tea, and working out their own particular variation of Marxism. They're just thugs and basically front men. They, they don't write any of the works attributed to them. But he's the national bankers. Right, and Marx probably didn't even write the Communist Manifesto. He just signed his name to it. The rabbis handed it to him and said, here, go spread this. The Gospel of the Destruction of Nations. Back to Hitler. At a public meeting where the great masses are gathered together, the best speaker is not he whose way of approaching a subject is most akin to the spirit of those intellectuals who may happen to be present, but the speaker who knows how to win the hearts of the masses. An educated man who is present and who finds fault with an address because he considers it to be on an intellectual plane that is too low, though he himself has witnessed its effect on the lower intellectual groups whose adherence has to be won, only shows himself completely incapable of rightly judging the situation and therewith proves that he can be of no use in the new movement. Only intellectuals can be of use to a movement who understand its mission and its aims so well that they have learned to judge our methods of propaganda exclusively by the success obtained and never by the impression which those methods made on the intellectuals themselves. For our propaganda is not meant to serve as an entertainment for those people who already have a nationalist outlook, but its purpose is to win the adhesion of those who have hitherto been hostile to national ideas and who are nevertheless of our own blood and race. In general, those considerations of which I have given a brief summary in the chapter on war propaganda became a, the guiding rules and principles which determined the kind of propaganda we were to adopt in our campaign and the manner in which we were to put it into practice. The success that has been obtained proves that our decision was right. So when somebody such as Mr. David Duke writes a book about his awakening, as though it's particularly earth-shattering, relevant, and important to all of us, and then he markets it to Syrians, Turks, and Lebanese, he's really missing the mark. It doesn't matter if you convince every single Arab that some white nationalist perspective in America is correct and that Jews have too much power in America. We're not out to win over Arabs to a white racialist movement. Well, well, right, but every once in a while something happens that's pretty farcical. And I noted two years ago Mein Kampf was a bestseller in India. Right, which is bizarre since India is a race of bastards and it would seem odd that a racialist movement based on, you know, um, blood would appeal to a country where their caste system is basically frivolous and worthless since they're all just different shades of brown. Well, of course. But let's continue with Adolf Hitler. All right. Please. The ends which any political reform movement sets out to attain can never be reached by trying to educate the public or influence those in power, but only by getting political power into its hands. Every idea 
that is meant to move the world has not only the right, but also the obligation of securing control of those means which will enable the idea to be carried into effect. In this world, success is the only rule of judgment whereby we can decide whether such an undertaking was right or wrong. And by the word success in this connection, I do not mean such a success, success as the mere conquest of power in 1918, but the successful issue whereby the common interests of the nation have been served. A coup d'etat cannot be considered successful if, as many empty-headed government lawyers in Germany now believe, the revolutionaries succeeded in getting control of the state into their hands, but only if, in comparison with the state of affairs under the old regime, the lot of the nation has been improved when the aims and intentions on which the revolution was based have been put into practice. This certainly does not apply to the German Revolution, as that movement was called, which brought a gang of bandits into power in the autumn of 1918. And Hitler is right. to the Rogue November uh, right, the November is the the the, the, no, the, the appropriately no, named November criminals. Yes, but the um, the Weimar Republic just drove Germany into the ground. And I remember during one of his speeches, he called out that now we must realize that everything that we are suffering today, we owe to them, the criminals who signed the treaty in 1918. And that's true. They say Hitler scapegoated them, he scapegoated the Jews. No one held a gun to the heads of the November criminals and forced them to capitulate. Nope. And I would say, in light of what was going to happen to Germany, that they would have been better off fighting to the bitter end. I don't think American mothers would have stomached losing half a million Americans in 1918, 1919, and 1920 to subdue Germany and march across the Rhine. The German army was still in good fighting order, and they had good unit cohesion. There was no reason to submit to a Carthaginian peace. They hadn't been decisively defeated in battle. Absolutely. Back to Hitler. But if the conquest of political power be a requisite preliminary for the practical realization of the ideals that inspire a reform movement, then any movement which aims at reform must, from the very first day of its activity, be considered by its leaders as a movement of the masses and not as a literary tea club or an association of Philistines who meet to play nine pins. The nature and internal organization of the new movement make it anti-parliamentarian. That is to say, it rejects in general and in its own structure all those principles according to which decisions are to be taken on the vote of the majority and according to which the leader is only the executor of the will and opinion of others. The movement lays down the principle that in the smallest as well as in the greatest problems, one person must have absolute authority and bear all responsibility. And this was his campaign promises and made in 1932 and 33. He stayed with the same political philosophy throughout his entire political career and kept his promises. And how, how many politicians do that? Maybe that's why the Jews hate him. How many politicians in America do that? Zero, zero, none. Well, Hitler, in his speech, when he was his first speech as chancellor, if I recall, this is a close paraphrase, but a bit rough. He stated, "We will not cheat and we will not steal. Therefore, I have categorically refused to come before the Volk with cheap promises, so easily made and so easily broken." Right. He laid out everything he was going to do in Mein Kampf. 
But what do we get today with politicians? All we get are cheap promises, and they're easily made and easily broken. When he came to power, he did everything he laid out to the best of, of, of to the best of his ability. He did it all. He put it into practice. They weren't campaign promises at all. All he was really doing was reiterating the political philosophy he had developed from the beginning. In our movement, the practical consequences of this principle are the following. The president of a large group is appointed by the head of the group immediately above his in authority. He is then the responsible leader of his group. All the committees are subject to his authority and not he to theirs. There is no such thing as committees that vote, but only committees that work. This work is allotted by the responsible leader who is the president of the group. The same principle applies to the higher organizations, the Birzik district, the Kreese, urban circuit, and the Gao, the region. In each case, the president is appointed from above and is invested with full authority and executive power. Only the leader of the whole party is elected at the general meeting of the members but he is the sole leader of the movement. All the committees are responsible to him, but he is not responsible to the committees. His decision is final, but he bears the whole responsibility of it. The members of the movement are entitled to call him to account by means of a new election or to remove him from office if he has violated the principles of the movement or has not served its interests adequately. He is then replaced by a more capable man who is invested with the same authority and obliged to bear the same responsibility. And today in the white movement, it seems that we have a lot of self-appointed leaders who have been around for 30 or 40 years. They've achieved nothing, but because of their seniority, they think they're entitled to lead the movement, guide it, shape it, and set policy and doctrine. They not only achieve nothing, but clowns, clowns like Alex Linder and, and people like that, that they inhibit those who are trying to achieve something. Right, and Hitler said that the old, tired conservatives who have been around for 20 or 30 years claiming to be patriots and nationalists, they've never achieved anything. They think that just because they've been in the movement the longest that they're entitled to be the leader by seniority, but their fruits don't bear that theory out, and that they should be swept aside and new blood with new ideas should be allowed to come into the movement. And that just because someone's been around for 30 years and won a bunch of long service medals in some nationalist people's patriot party, it doesn't mean he's fit to lead the revival of the nation. He's just some tired old man who's, you know, declined to rock the boat, and the party keeps him in. And don't we have a lot well, of that today, the old guard that's done nothing? Well, well, absolutely. Their ideas are tired, and they should be retired. That This form of government that Hitler lays out here, it's, it's very close. It's not perfect, but it's very close to what is found of the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 18. With the one exception that we must esteem Moses to have been chosen by God and not by the people. And I'd like to read a couple of verses from verse 19. Hearken now, and this is Jethro, Moses' father-in-law speaking. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest be a bridge between the people and God, right? That thou mayest bring the causes unto God, and thou shalt teach them the ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do, authoritarianism, right? Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers 
of thousands. And, and, and there's your um, there's your Gao or region, right? <laughs> and rules of hundreds. And there's your Kreis or urban circuit. And rulers of fifties. And there's your berserk or district. And rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring to thee, but every small matter they shall judge. Top-down authoritarianism. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. And that's Top-down authoritarianism, it, it's basically a, a, a very similar system. One ruler is, is chosen, and he gets to choose his entire administration. Well, you know, I see some... And only that one ruler, only that top ruler is, is elected and accountable to the people. And everybody sure. else is accountable to him. And, and that's sort of like, it, it's, it's a democracy because the, the top ruler is chosen by the people. And if he's failing, the, the people have a right to call a new election, or the party has a right to call for a new election. It's an but, dictatorship. But when he is in power, he has the power. And, and, and that way things get done. That way there is no compromise. There is no back and forth, uh, multi-party bickering for interminably, and nothing ever gets done, which is what we see in Congress, which is what we see in parliamentary democracy, which is how we got to the point in history that we're in. Uh, I mean, we're in a mess, and, and that's how we got there. You know, they, they say, oh, well, we don't have the votes to stop this treaty. We don't have the votes to stop amnesty. We don't have the votes to close the borders. Oh, we don't have the votes to oppose... This, this new budget, we don't have the votes for this, we have to make a compromise. Well, my rights aren't to be compromised away. My, my constitutional rights under the Bill of Rights, to me, they're non-negotiable. Well, well right, and, and, and oh, that's well and good. And, and I understand, uh, of course, I, I would hope that I understand that there is a, a transcendental, broader um, reason in the plan of God for all this, but we can't blame God for this mess. We got ourselves into this mess. And, and, and but by failing to keep the republic the founders left us, we got ourselves into this mess. And, and we can't blame anybody. And, and that's where parliamentary democracy is always going to end up. Well, it always starts with the Jews coming in and preying on greed. They say, oh, we have things you can buy. If you can't afford them, we'll loan them to you. Know, we'll loan it's, you the money. We'll finance it. We'll sell you this on credit. They get their foot in the door. History's oldest panderers. That, that's the story of Judsus. They, they pander to one vice or another to, to curry your favor and, and until they can control you with it. We need to stop letting them get their foot in the door. Would you like to continue with Adolf Hitler? One of the highest when they all go to the lake of fire. One of the highest duties of the movement is to make this principle imperative not only within its own ranks but also for the whole state. The man who becomes leader is invested with the highest and unlimited authority, but he also has to bear the last and gravest responsibility. The man 
who has not the courage to shoulder responsibility for his actions, is not fitted to be a leader. Only a man of heroic mold can have the vocation for such a task. Human progress and human cultures are not founded by the multitude. They are exclusively the work of personal genius and personal efficiency. Because of this principle, our movement must necessarily be anti-parliamentarian, and if it takes part in the parliamentary institution, it is only for the purpose of destroying this institution from within. In other words... And that's exactly what happened in 1932 and 1933. That is exactly what happened. And Hitler's talked about it. Well, when was Mein Kampf first published? 1923, 24? I, I, I forget. I honestly do. But, but it, was, it, it had to be written 10 years before it happened. And he said he was going to do it, and it was there all that time, and it was a, a, a major core of his political philosophy that all the people that voted for him understood. Oh, I'm sorry, it was 1925 for Volume 1, 26 for Volume 2, because 24 right. would have just been the Beer Hall Putsch, and he was in prison as of like November of 24. So, so it's nine years ahead of time this was published, and he's, he, he's saying exactly what he's going to do, and he does it. He, he did what he got elected by the German people to do. He was elected, in essence, all the German people who voted for him knew what he was about. In essence, they all had at least some familiarity with his political philosophy. They all understood this when they voted for this man that he was going to get rid of the parliamentary democracy. And that's why they voted for him. Or the Enable Act was voted for by the German people. And if they didn't know, they had access to the information. It wasn't as though he had some secret platform he wasn't going to share with the masses. Hey, Obama is a Marxist. We all know that. And a lot of us knew it in, in 2008 and 2007. If the general masses didn't know they did have access to the information. And it's readily available in this digital age. Well, when you vote for somebody, if you don't know what they're about, the fault is yours. The German people voted for Adolf Hitler's brand of authoritarianism when they elected all those National Socialist candidates into seats in the German parliament. Because of this principle, our movement must necessarily be anti-parliamentarian. And if it takes part in the parliamentary institution, it is only for the purpose of destroying this institution from within. In other words, we wish to do away with an institution which we must look upon as one of the gravest symptoms of human decline. The movement steadfastly refuses to take up any stand in regard to those problems which are either outside of its sphere of political work or seem to have no fundamental importance for us. It does not aim at bringing about a religious reformation, but rather a political reorganization of our people. It looks upon the two religious denominations as equally valuable mainstays for the existence of our people. He's referring to the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church. Yes. And therefore, it makes war on all those parties which would degrade this foundation on which the religious and moral stability of our people is based to an instrument in the service of party interests. And today, now, now, what we can see that Hitler, uh, he, he had to deal with, um, well, we're going to read this shortly from, from Leon de Grel. He had to deal with certain 
Catholic clerics in order to get the Enabling Act through. But when he did that, we can see from this paragraph here, and, and he expresses this several times in Mein Kampf, he expresses these feelings. We can see that Hitler did not compromise in his relations with Christians when he rose to power. Rather, he outlined years before his party's ascension that the Christian denominations were valuable to the spiritual health of the people and that therefore the party would not meddle in religious affairs. But when he deals with the clerics in order to get the Enabling Act through, he's really not compromising. He's only acting on values that he already had and expressed in Mein Kampf. That's all he's doing. And today we have people shouting about how the Jehovah's Witnesses were persecuted under the Nazi regime. Well, Jehovah's Witness as a religion, it's antithetical to German revival, the National Socialist principles, and it's greatly at odds with even mainstream Christian doctrine. It's a bizarre cult, and it had no place in Germany. Wouldn't you agree, Bill, that Jehovah's Witness is not a, it's not a religion that is indigenous to the German people? No, absolutely not. Transplanted American called. It's like going to the Eskimos and trying to make Jews out of them. Oh, maybe they already are. I'm sorry. Finally, the movement does not aim at establishing any one form of state or trying to destroy another, but rather to make those fundamental principles prevail without which no republic and no monarchy can exist for any length of time. The movement does not consider its mission to be the establishment of a monarchy or the preservation of a republic, but rather to create a German state. The problem concerning the outer form of the state, that is to say its final shape, is not of fundamental importance. It is a problem which must be solved in the light of what seems practical and opportune at the moment. Once a nation has understood and appreciated the great problems that affect its inner existence, the question of outer formalities will never lead to any internal conflict. Now, now these words from Mein Kampf more than demonstrate that if the National Socialists ever came to power in Germany, then the Enabling Act, which did away with the parliamentary democracy, in in essence, was inevitable. And Adolf Hitler warned of it long before the NSDAP did come to power. When the German people put Hitler in power, they were essentially asking for the dissolution of parliamentary democracy in Germany. It's not Hitler's fault that he was one politician that actually kept his promises. So so there's no, um, you know, the the Jews like to portray Adolf Hitler as um, getting his foot into the door of parliament and, and suddenly seizing power and turning Germany into a tyranny. And that's all straight propaganda and it's all bullshit. And and it, it it makes me sick to hear white nationalists and and Christian nationalists especially um, talk about these the, the enabling act and talk about the Reichstag fire and just repeat the same old Jewish communist drivel and none of it's true it's all Jewish propaganda all of it. From the beginning of a rather long article by Leon de Grel, entitled, How Hitler Consolidated Power in Germany and Launched a Social Revolution, 
which was published by the Institute for Historical Review in the fall of 1992, we have a glimpse of the Germany that Hitler gained political control of, a Germany which was broken and starving in 1932 under the double yoke of both the impression of the Treaty of Versailles, which was basically just pillaging Germany, and the Great Depression, the so-called Great Depression, right? Did you have any remarks before we begin? Only that the German people knowingly and willingly voted for a authoritarian dictatorial government. They were sick of a nation of 30 parties. So if, if we run for office, we, we start a party and we pledge to dismantle the Supreme Court and the Congress and to establish a dictatorship and people vote for that and we proceed to do that, well, if they voted for that, then we have a mandate to do that. And it shouldn't come as a surprise when we honor our promise and do that. And the Jewish media, in in recent times especially, probably since the Clinton administration, loves to talk about the mandate that the American voters gave these presidents. Clinton never even got 50% of the vote. That, that I recall, both of in either of his um, elections, he, he never had a mandate. There was a third-party candidate, I believe, in both yeah, of the Clinton elections. had 43% of the vote in 1992, Bush had 375 and Ross Perot had 18.9%. And in 96? In 96, Clinton had 49.2%, Bob Dole had 407 and Ross Perot again 8.4%. Well, I thought so. I didn't think Clinton ever had 50% of the vote, but they love to talk about his mandate. So if that's a mandate, what about Hitler? He, he was the largest, the NSDAP was the single largest party in the Reichstag, even though they didn't get the 50% mark. Well, well, right, but they clearly had it with, with um, help from the German National People's Party. Right. So, so those two parties combined, and, and, and the objectives of the German National People's Party were very um, – well, well it, Adolf Hitler wasn't their chosen solution, but he was a solution very similar to what they had hoped for, so, right. so they could work with In the German presidential election of 1932, the first round – Hindenburg, an independent candidate, had 53% of the vote. Hitler had 36.8% of the vote. And Ernst Thalmann of the KPD, the Communist Party of Germany, had 10.2% of the vote. So are we to see this as an affirmation of communism? I see it as a rejection of communism. Absolutely. Okay, from Leon de Grel. Half a century later, and I think de Grelle was actually writing this while he was in Spain in the 1980s. Half a century later, few people understand the crisis Germany faced at that time, meaning the, the time of the ascension of National Socialism. Today, it's easy to assume the Germans have always been well-fed and even plump. But the Germans Hitler inherited were virtual skeletons. During the preceding years, a score of democratic governments had come and gone, often in utter confusion. Instead of alleviating people's misery, they had increased it due to their own instability. It was impossible for them to pursue any given plan for more than a year or two. 
Germany had arrived at a dead end. In just a few years, there had been 224,000 suicides, a horrifying figure bespeaking a state of misery even more horrifying. I'd like to expand on that. In 1932 alone, there were approximately 220,000 suicides in that one year in Germany, a nation of at most 65 million people. And in that same year in America, a nation of around 150 million people, there were less than 30,000 suicides. By the beginning of 1933, the misery of the German people was virtually universal. At least six million unemployed and hungry workers roamed aimlessly through the streets, receiving a pitiful unemployment benefit of less than 42 marks per month. Many of those out of work had families to feed, so that altogether some 20 million Germans, a third of the country's population, were reduced to trying to survive on about 40 pfennigs per person per day. I'm not sure what the um, what the exact ratio would be to an American money, but a, a mark was not worth a dollar, and a pfennig was not worth a penny. If I'm, I can be corrected on that, but I believe that's what DeGrell is saying. Well, there's a um, historical conversion I found, but it's applied to 1938, which that would be a particularly bad one to use, since by 38 Germany's economy was stabilized. <laughs> I, mark I was worth. Time. In 1938, $1 would get 2.49 Reichsmarks. I'm having difficulty, though, tracking down 1932, 31, 30, or 33. Well, well in 32, I bet a dollar got a lot more Reichsmarks than it did in 38. I would, I would guess maybe at least 100, possibly more. Further on in that same article, there is a lengthy section discussing Hitler's ascension to power and the Enabling Act. In all fairness, a loaf of bread was about five cents at that time. These last chancellors, Herr Bruning, Herr von Poppen, and General Schleicher, were able to maintain rule only by executive decree because of the, the, the fractured nation, the, the fractured nature of the parliamentary and uh, of the parliamentary democracy, right? Right. So they, they have no mandate. They're just using um, decree. They're ruling by fiat, basically. Right. Adolf Hitler had a mandate, and, and the, chan- the three chancellors prior to him all could only maintain rule by executive decree. So they forfeited. They, they were the tyrants that forfeited the, the, the parliamentary democracy. Their authority, artificially sustained by misuse of Article 48, was dependent on von Hindenburg and the Camarilla advising him. Just how slim was their level of popular support was shown in a particularly humiliating 1932 Reichstag vote of confidence in which more than 90% of the deputies voted against him and his government. Hitler's ascension to power abruptly brought an end to government impotence. As a condition of appointing him, however, Hindenburg had demanded that the new chancellor be hemmed in like a prisoner in his own government. In his first government, 
Hitler was obliged to name four times as many conservative or better reactionary ministers as his own men. Just two members of his first cabinet were national socialists. Hindenburg's representatives were given the mission of keeping Hitler on a leash. At the Reichstag session of March 24th, however, Hitler broke that leash, not with yet another executive decree like his immediate predecessors, but by obtaining a two-thirds parliamentary majority for the Enabling Act that legally amended the Constitution and gave him sweeping plenary powers for a period of four years. Four years in power to plan, create, and make decisions. Politically, it was a revolution. Hitler's first revolution, and completely democratic, as had been every stage of his rise. His initial triumph had come through the support of the electorate. Similarly, sweeping authority to govern was granted him to a vote of more than two-thirds of the Reichstag's deputies elected by universal suffrage. This was in accord with the basic principle of Hitler's, no power without the freely given approval of the people. He used to say, if you can win mastery over the people only by imposing the power of the state, you'd better figure on a nine o'clock curfew. It's a shame we don't need nine o'clock curfews in America then. Nowhere in the 20th century Europe had the authority of a head of state ever been based on such overwhelming and freely given national consent. Prior to Hitler, from 1919 to 1932, those governments piously styling themselves as democratic had usually come to power by meager majorities, well, sometimes with one or 52%. That the 1928 German election for the Reichstag, the party with the largest number of votes was the SPD, the Social Democrats, and they only managed 29.8% of the vote. That's certainly no mandate. And if I may, can I, can I rattle off a, a list of all the parties that ran in the 1928 election? Feel free. To show what Hitler swept away. I'm going to read the names in English just to save time. One, Social Democratic Party of Germany, SPD. Two, the German National People's Party, DNVP. Three, the German Center Party. Four, the Communist Party of Germany. And, and let me say the German National People's Party was more or less the conservative party. They really wanted to return to the original monarchy. And the, um, the Center Party was mostly a Catholic party. And they are the party that, that, that Hitler had to win over the votes of in, in order to 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 um get the enabling act to pass go on five german people's party dvp and i think that was one of the ones that he worked with wasn't it the deutsche volkspartei yes six german democratic party the dpp seven the civil rights party also known as the reich party for civil rights and deflation the Reich Party of the German Middle Class, also known as the Economic Party, and that was um, that would be what we're at eight or nine now here. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, that was eight. Okay, now nine. The Pastor Greber Party, that received less than ten thousand votes. 
Now we're at 10. The Bavarian People's Party. 11, of course. National Socialist German Workers' Party. 12. Christian National Peasants and Farmers' Party. 13. German Hanoverian Party. 15. Christian National Middle Class Party. 16. The Civil Rights Party. 17. The German Farmers Party. 18. Volkisch National Bloc. 19. Agricultural League. 20. Saxon Peasants. 21. Christian Social Reich Party. 22. Left Communists. 23. Polish People's Party. 24. Wendish People's Party. 25. Schleswig Club. Well, let me say, the Wends, historically, the Wends were a Slavic people settled around what, what we would consider East Germany today and, and Berlin. All right. I should throw that in there. 27, the Masurian People's Party. 28, Lithuanian People's Party. 29, Friesland. 30, Old Social Democratic Party of Germany. 31, Evangelical People's Association. 32, German Social Party. 33, People's Block of Inflation Victims. 34, German House and Property Owners Party. 35, Independent Social Democratic Party of Germany. 36, Evangelical People's Service. 37, Deflation and Construction Party. 38, German Reich Block of the Damaged. I think that was a party for disabled veterans and such. That thirty-seven. Okay, oh, we're not, but that's okay. That's yeah, thirty-eight okay. now. I'm, I'm starting to lose count here. I, I think this will be thirty-eight, or is this thirty-nine? Well, we're getting close. Thirty-eight, we'll call it. Right party for craft, commerce, and industry. Thirty-nine. A political list of war victims, disabled, and benefit recipients. Forty. Franconian peasantry. Forty-one. Party for justice and tenant protection. Forty-two. German Christian middle class folk party. 43, life interests of the unmarried. Now, in a nation with 43 parties, how can anyone oppose the Jews? Life interests of the unmarried, that sounds like, um, that, that sounds like the same-sex marriage party of the Weimar years. <laughs> life um, interests. I'm sure it probably was. Leave it interesting the, there, Lettigan. The American replaced all that with what we call special interest groups, right? Right, and so they, political action committees and and things like that. They don't need forty three parties; they just have ten thousand packs. Right. But this is what Hitler was up against, and when he said he was going to sweep all these parties out of Germany, he meant it, and he kept that promise. He meant it, and he was democratically elected based on that as a major part of his political philosophy and basically his campaign platform when he said he was going to sweep all the, power, all, all the parties out of Germany, how would the people interpret that? But an end to party politics, which was destroying Germany. Back to Leon de Grel, quoting Adolf Hitler. I am not a dictator, Hitler had often affirmed, and I never will be. Democracy will be rigorously enforced by national socialism. Authority does not mean tyranny. A tyrant is someone who puts himself in power without the will of the people or against the will of the people. A democrat 
is placed in power by the people. But democracy is, is not limited to a single formula. It may be partisan or parliamentary, or it may be authoritarian. The important thing is that the people have wished it, chosen it, established it in its given form. That was the case with Hitler. He came to power in an essentially democratic way, What which the important thing is he didn't seize power. He was what Germans voted for. Whether one likes it or not, this fact is undeniable. And after coming to power, his popular support measurably increased from year to year. The more intelligent and honest of his enemies have been obliged to admit this. Men such as the declared anti-Nazi historian and professor and Jew, Joachim Fest, who wrote, for Hitler was never interested in establishing a mere tyranny, sheer greed for power will not suffice as explanation for his personality and energy. He was not born to be a mere tyrant. He was fixated upon his mission of defending Europe and the Aryan race. Never had he felt so dependent upon the masses as he did at this time, and he watched their reactions with anxious concern. De Grel goes on to say, These lines weren't written by Dr. Goebbels, but by a stern critic of Hitler in his career. And he cites this Joachim Fest. The, the title of his book is Hitler. It was published in New York in 1974, page 417. By February 28, 1933, less than a month after his appointment as chancellor, Hitler had already managed to free himself of the conservative ballast by which Hindenburg had thought to weigh him down. The Reichstag fire of the previous evening prompted the elderly president to approve a new emergency law for the protection of the people and the state, which considerably increased the powers of the executive. Hitler meant, however, to obtain more than just concessions ruefully granted by a pliable old man. He sought plenary powers legally accorded him by the nation's supreme democratic institution, the Reichstag. Hitler Hitler prepared his coup with the skill, the patience, and the astuteness for which he is legendary. He possessed, historian Joachim Fest later wrote, an intelligence that included, above all, a sure sense of the rhythm to be observed in the making of decisions. And Bill, when Hitler finally won it big in the summer of 32, there were close to 100 parties at that time. Some new ones popped up. The, the most interesting name I found was the Radical Party, also known as the Movement for Legal Birth Control and Prosperity. That has to be some sort of Jewish It movement. sounds like every Jew with a bullhorn started a political <laughs> party, right? They made themselves the head of the party, and they pilfered all the, the funds. DeGrell's article, which is actually pretty good, but it's pretty long, After explaining how, at first, von Hindenburg tried to contain Hitler, as we have just seen, Hitler then won over the hearts, the confidence, and the sympathies of not only the sentimental von Hindenburg, but also many of the monarchists and Wehrmacht officers, 
by arranging a glorious celebration of Germany's illustrious past at Potsdam. And, and, and basically, that, 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 he, he, he basically placated them by, by commemorating that their past and letting them stand on stage in their full regalia and, and feel important for a while, right? But, but that went a long way, as DeGroe explains, to winning the, the heart of, of, of von Hindenburg and, and touching, uh, touching him in sentimental ways and his outlook towards Hitler became a lot more positive, right? To continue with de Grel, in order to establish his new state in definitive form, Hitler now proposed to obtain the official ratification of the Reichstag, which would establish his authority to govern as a virtual dictator for a period of several years. And let me say, let me say briefly that... Um, this form of government that Hitler instituted really isn't new at all. In old Rome, in the Republican Rome, the Roman Senate, in times of turmoil, in times of war, <clears throat> in times of war, the Roman Senate would turn all the power of the state over to a single elected dictator. And that dictator would have supreme authority in the state for the entire period of the war or whatever turmoil there was as he saw fit. And when the crisis had passed, the dictator was expected to turn authority back over to the Roman Senate. That is a system of government which lasted in Rome, if my memory serves me correctly, for at least 400 years. At least 400 years until the time of the Caesars. Well, I guess Sala kind of subverted it when he marched on Rome. Um, yeah, the civil wars um, subverted the old Roman Republic, right. To gain such plenary powers lawfully, the German constitution had to be amended, and this would require approval by two-thirds of the parliament's members. Hitler's party, having won 17,300,000 votes in the elections of March 5, 1933, for the new Reichstag, held a total of 288 seats, making it by far the largest single party. His conservative ally in the temporary partnership, temporary because he did away with all the parties, Hugenberg's German National People's Party had captured 4,750,000 votes and held another 52 seats, giving the coalition a total of 340 deputies. After deducting the 81, the 81 empty communist seats, the opposition now mustered just 226 members, 120 Social Democrats, 92 Catholic Center Party members and BDP deputies and 14 others. Although his coalition held a majority of seats, to alter the Constitution, Hitler needed a two-thirds majority, which meant 36 additional votes. At first sight, this goal seemed almost impossible. 
For more than a decade, the Catholic Center and Bavarian People's Parties, the BVP, had been outspoken critics of Hitler and his National Socialist movement, unhesitatingly using religion as a partisan political weapon and even denying religious burial to Catholic National Socialists murdered by communist killers. Hitler, with the assistance of Goring, who was now president of the new Reichstag, would now have to win over that clerical flock. The center party leader, Monsignor Kass, a squat and pudgy prelate, who found the collecting of votes to be more satisfying than the guidance of souls, was flattered and courted by Hitler, who dangled before him the promise of a rapprochement between the state and the Catholic Church, an earnest promise that Hitler would make good on the following summer. The beguiled prelate may have believed that he was going to lead errant sheep back to the fold. In any case, Hitler succeeded in persuading and seducing the center party. Some deputies of the smaller opposition parties also yielded. As I said, Hitler had already outlined in Mein Kampf his esteem for the Catholic Church in Germany as an institution, and he saw it as a necessary institution, the other, one of two, the other being the Lutheran Church, as a necessary institution for the morality and, and the sustenance of the, the, the spiritual health of the people. He outlined that in Mein Kampf. He's only practicing it here. He's not compromising. He's only practicing what he had already outlined in Mein Kampf, basically. When it came time to vote, Hitler was granted plenary powers with a sweeping majority of 441 votes to 94. He had won not just two-thirds, but 82.44% of the Assembly's votes. This enabling act granted Hitler for four years virtually absolute authority over the legislative as well as the executive affairs of the government. And as we've demonstrated, this act was inevitable. It was an inevitable process begun when the people elected Adolf Hitler's party to the majority that they had in parliament. It was inevitable. It had to happen. It was their political philosophy. The five paragraphs of this law for the alleviation of the misery of the people in the nation were brief and to the point. One, laws may be promulgated by the right government apart from the procedures provided for by the Constitution. Two, laws promulgated by the right government may deviate from the Constitution provided they do not change the position of the Reichstag or of the Reichsrat, the powers of the Reich president are not changed. Three, laws promulgated by the Reich government will be prepared by the chancellor and published in the official journal. Unless otherwise specified, they become effective on the day following publication. Four, treaties concluded by the Reich with foreign states that concern matters of national legislation do not require ratification by the legislative bodies. The right government is empowered to issue the regulations necessary for their execution. And five, 
This law becomes effective on the day of publication and remains valid until April 1st, 1937. It also becomes invalid if the present government is replaced by another. It went into effect Berlin, March 24th, 1933, signed by von Hindenburg, Frick, von Duroth, and Krasig. Now, now, that gave Adolf Hitler the ability to repair Germany, which is what he did. And oh. the Jews hated them. The, the Jews birth- hated them. And the Jews had to destroy Germany. It's that simple. The birth control party couldn't have repaired Germany. How about the um, life interests of the unmarried? <laughs> well, well, right, exactly. It, it, exactly. Adolf Hitler, if the National Socialists had to deal with the parliamentary democracy, nothing would have ever got done. It would have been more of the same old stuff that you saw in the Weimar Republic. The, the other parties would have ganged up on the National Socialists and stonewalled them. The Jews would have bought the other parties. There would have, would have been endless bickering, endless fights on the floor of the Reichstag until the people got tired of it. And, and who knows what the outcome would have been. How long can something go like that, go on like that, when your people are starving to death? And the only way Germany came out of starvation was Adolf Hitler and his replacement of the Jewish Central Bank with a national economic policy that served the interests of the German people, which de Grel actually talked about in the section of his paper prior to the one I read. I'm sorry, we can only do so much in one program. Thus, a parliamentary democracy exercising its constitutional powers had legally established the parliamentary democracy, and this is an important point, the parliamentary democracy had legally established an authoritarian national state. Next, a solution was needed to... to the problem of the horde of the competing regional, state, and local parliaments, jurisdictions, and authorities. For the most part, these authorities were virtual nullities, and there was no love lost between them. For 14 years, though, they had acted together whenever an opportunity presented itself to thwart the central government in Berlin. It was inconceivable that a strong government such as the one Hitler had just established, could function effectively with thousands of second-level politicians carping and questioning his every move. Anyway, Germans had in fact become sick and tired of the squandering of authority, the perpetual squabbling, the pettiness, discord, and the anarchy for which, in the final analysis, it was the people who paid. It is a fact, the French historian Benoit Machin later observed, that the unification of the states and the Reich answered one of the most profound aspirations of the German people. They had enough of being torn apart by the constant threats of succession of the provincial governments. For centuries they had dreamed of being part of a single community. That's what Adolf Hitler brought them. It seemed a simple enough task because the public opinion demanded the abolition of the administrative mess. But such a reform would necessarily bruise the vanity of thousands and collide head-on with many local special interests. A man who is a council president or a minister, even if only of a small state, does not easily resign himself to being no more than a private citizen, to becoming 
once again, let us say, a provincial lawyer scampering to the courthouse with con coattails flying. The 2,400 legislative deputies would also be bitter about losing the good life they had come to know and expect. Gone, the prestige, the deference, the awards, the vacation trips at the public expense. All that should sound familiar. The discreet gratuities. Who among us does not make a wry face when swallowing bitter medicine? But it had to be, for Hitler had his eyes fixed on the national goal, a unified nation. And it can only be unified if you sweep 30 parties away and get rid of the parliamentary democracy. We have the same problem here today. I mean, we're going to have it. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But anybody who, who, who understands our position today should sure as hell understand Germany's position under the Weimar Republic, and it was a hell of a lot worse, without a doubt. Adolf Hitler rose to power democratically, and once he got there, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. Well, get rid of the parliament. Get rid of the parliamentary democracy. Basically, like you said, every Jew with a bullhorn had his own party with a couple hundred people, and today every Jew with a blog has a dozen followers. Absolutely. Okay, that's it. That's the justification for the German, for the National Socialist reaction to the Reichstag fire. There it is in a nutshell. The Reichstag fire may have been a catalyst to the Enabling Act, but the Enabling Act was inevitable regardless because it was the National Socialist philosophical method of governance was not parliamentary democracy. And if they gained, as they promised, if they gained power democratically, they were going to do away with it. And that's what the mainstream, even though they had a different solution, they wanted the monarchy back. The German National People's Party, they were the mainstream conservatives, more or less. They wanted the monarchy back. They weren't going to get it, so they allied themselves with Adolf Hitler. Thank right, you for well, joining me. Could, could we say anything different? If we get power in this nation democratically, that's the end of American democracy. Well, well, uh, I mean, it's never going to happen. It, it's it, it's not supposed to play out that way. I'd be surprised, but but yes, right. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, if we had a political, a Christian identity political party and gained power democratically, the first thing that would go is the democracy, absolutely, and we'd return to an a. a, a a theocratic authoritarian form of government. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh. I'll be here next Friday with Acts chapter 15, part 2. Next Saturday's program, the topic will be announced at Christagenia during the week. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Praise Yahweh.